I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome listeners to this brand new season of Castaway. We're starting strong by welcoming the mother of podcasting, Deborah Francis-White from the Guilty Feminist Podcast an award-winning show with over 70 million downloads to date. Deborah has been pivotal at bringing the conversation about feminism into the mainstream, making feminism relatable in her hilarious and irreverent way. As a podcast fanatic, Deborah brought with her some real gems to cast away, including Fake Doctors, Real Friends, the nostalgic podcast with scrub actors Zach Braff and Donald Faison, chatting about the show and their bromance. Best Pick, a film review podcast that provides a critical analysis of whether each Academy Award Best Picture winner deserved their win, as well as some juicy sex and relationship podcasts, including You'll Do and award-winning Brown Girls Do It Too, amongst many, many more. So sit back, relax, and let's get cast away with Deborah Francis-White. Deborah Francis-White, welcome. Hello, Laura. It's such a delight to be here. Congratulations on your award at the British Podcasting Awards. Where do you put all the awards now? There's been so many for The Guilty Feminist. I've got a bar upstairs, like a <gasps> mini pub. Look, we, we knocked through upstairs. It may, it's, this is making me sound like I've got an east wing. I haven't. I've got a small flat in Camden, but we knocked through to the loft mm-hmm. so we could get a bit of outdoor space. This is what we do in London. If you're listening outside London, there is no more space. So you, you knock through your roof. You build and you try and yeah, get a, if you can get another six inches out of there, you do. I often dream, Laura, of finding new rooms in my house, like through a cupboard <laughs> or something. And I've looked it up and apparently it means you're looking for new opportunities. But in London, I think it genuinely does mean you're looking for more square footage. So we put a bar up there because, you know, it's a very small room and we thought it'd be fun. So it's currently behind the bar with the booze. We're practically the same person, Deborah. Earlier on today, before this record, I popped and bought some wallpaper for my shed, which we are turning into a bar because you can put the tools in the shed, but you know what would be better? You don't need to put those tools in the shed. They can go somewhere else. You put a bar in the shed. So I've just bought wallpaper for my shed. How often do you use, say, a pitchfork versus how often do you have a pint? That's all I'm you know, saying. That's that's my that's my point. I don't I don't think I've ever used a pitchfork, to be honest with you. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's where you've kept the awards. And and unfortunately, this year, we did have to do it virtually, but everyone was there in spirit. And it is nice to see how everyone's kind of adapting and the resilience that's been seen kind of through the last few months from, from all of us. No, that's absolutely true. We have powered through like some kind of modern day heroes. At first, I did not think I was going to handle it very well at all. I was like weeping. I feel like, Laura, I don't know if you had this, but I'm a people person, I'm an extrovert, and it felt Mm. like I was withdrawing, like caffeine withdrawal headaches, Mm -hmm. like I was withdrawing from the caffeine of humanity. But now, if I'm incredibly honest, I do like being home a lot more and in my nest a lot more. I've got really used to it, Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't want to go back to charging around outdoors (laughs) to (laughs) such a level 
as I was in 2019. It was too much. It was too much. I think I'm the exact same. I think it's all changed. It's the longest I've ever been in my house ever in one go. I don't think I've ever been in my bed in my house for a month or let alone for four months. I'm out a lot. I'm 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 a going out, finding adventure type of gal. But this has taught me the value of sitting still and staying in. It's possible, Laura, I've got Lockholm syndrome. I think we all will have a little bit. I've also, like, I've had a few friends go, do you want to come over for a barbecue? And I'm like, I'm, I've already done one this week. I don't know if I could possibly do more than mm. one. Mm, me too. Right. So let's let's chat podcast. Your podcast started in 2015. But those five years have made you like an old timer. I'm not calling you old, Deborah but I'm calling you an old timer in the podcasting world. You're you're who other people look to to say that is how you do a podcast. That's very kind of you. I mean, the success of The Guilty Feminist comes down to a lot of people, by no means just me. I co-host it with a different comedian every show, but I have a pool of comedians I love to work with who, you know, we just have good chemistry, good connection. Uh, we share our value sets in terms of feminism. And I'm just very blessed to work with so many incredibly funny women. And then our guests that we can attract, the activists, the artists, the comedians, the the writers, people with something to say, is just phenomenal. And it's become much more of an activist social space where people come on because they want to change the world than it was when we started it. It was more like, oh, let's talk to comedians about how they're feeling about their feminism in their place, in their world. And now it's much more about the wider world and it's much more intersectional than it was. And it's been such a glorious thing. And I think I think it's it's gone the distance because we keep on reinventing it. The same way that Madonna has had a long shelf life mm-hmm. because every time you turn around, she looks different. We've listened to the criticism, we've built, we've changed, we've we've grown. Therefore it's kept it fresh and interesting for me. I'm a feminist. But recently, I confessed to Susan McComa, my co-pilot for today, that when a mutual friend who is an attractive female performer was posting all of the terrible unsolicited sexting she gets in her Instagram DMs, really terrible stuff. She gets really, I mean, really graphic stuff. And she publishes it to educate everyone about how it is to be a female, you know, a celebrity, uh, a woman in the public eye, a comedian, Mm. a performer. And when I saw this, I confessed to Susan that my first thought was, that is so awful for her. Why do men do it? And my second was, why do men not ever message me inappropriate things? Is it something I'm not putting out there? (laughs) Because I literally, like three times a year, I'll get something like this. And this is a paraphrase of a real message I got last week. With great respect and feminism and consent, I have to tell you, I think you're hot. With great respect and feminism consent. I mean, that is so nice. I mean, it's not arousing, but it is lo- no. It's so lovely. And what a great, what a nice way to do it. When you started out this podcast, I know it was like the brainchild between you and Sophie Hagen. Why did you start it? Why did you start that first podcast? Honestly, in 2012 and 2013, feminism was really making noise again. Movements get stuck sometimes. I remember hearing Gloria Steinem speak and she said a movement has to be moving somewhere. And there were rumblings to start the engine again in earnest around 2012, 2013. Chimamanda's amazing TED talk, We Should All Be Feminists. Mm-hmm. What Malala did, absolutely standing mm-hmm. up for girls and women and their right to be educated, almost paid the ultimate price. And then in more popular mainstream, Catamaran started a conversation about feminism. Bridget Christie's incredible show, A Big For Her, 
And I knew that I wanted to be involved in this so much, but I I was genuinely feeling like they all seem to know what they're doing. And the women in my life who were talking about feminism, were talking about it very stridently. And I felt like I'm a feminist, but I'm not sure I'm doing it right. Mm-hmm. And I remember Bridget Christie saying to me, you'll never find your audience until you say the thing you're frightened of saying that no one else is saying. And I thought, well, that's all right for you, Bridget. What you want to say is so certain and so powerful. What I want to say is I'm a feminist, but... Mm-hmm. But then I thought, do you know what? I've got nothing to lose by saying this. You know, and if 100 or 200 people or 2,000 people listen to this podcast every week, that is an enormous win. That's a huge audience. And when you say I'm a feminist, but, and you start to admit things. So, you know, one of the things I admitted was I'm a feminist, but one time I got in a light aircraft from Cape Cod to Boston and the pilot asked me my weight in front of everybody And I lied by 20 pounds, endangering the lives of the other passengers, the pilot and a border collie that was along for the ride. And this is true. When we were across the water, you know, when light aircrafts get really shaky, yeah, it got shaky. And I said to my best gay friend, David, I went, David, I've lied about my weight. There might not be enough fuel in the plane. And he said, oh, don't worry, darling. They always put on 10 pounds for women and gay men. I said, well, I've lied by 20, so we've got to hope no one else is like. But, you know, that's ridiculous. They can see what I look like. What does it matter? What does it matter what yeah. I weigh? That's a ridiculous but it's response. Ingrained, to- it's ingrained in us as women to like lie about our age, to lie about our weight, because we're told that's what we should do. And, and we see other people do it. And what made you so popular, what made the, the podcast so popular was that you've made feminism accessible to so many people. And I think a lot of people sometimes are afraid to talk about issues that are really important because they'll say the wrong thing or it'll be inappropriate or it won't be PC or they'll say the wrong thing. They'll make they'll make it worse. What was it that said, why don't we do a podcast? What made you say that? Uh, Well, I always think that podcasts are radio that nobody stops you making. And (laughs) that's true. It's true. I keep waiting for someone to come around and go, "Mm, that's enough now. But they don't. You can keep doing it. If you can record a voice note on your phone, you can podcast. You can put it out there. And what's amazing now, you know, it's not just podcasting. It's it's YouTube. it's, It's TikTok. It's all sorts of things the creators have taken control of the means of production. So there's, there are no gatekeepers anymore. You know, we've built a huge audience with The Guilty Feminist. We played the Royal Albert Hall this time mm-hmm. last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just did a big tour of America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Would you prefer having that live audience in front of you? We always had an audience. We, yeah. we were a very rare podcast like that. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's one of the reasons for the success of it. Most people do a podcast at a studio first. If it gets popular, then they might take it out on the road and do some live versions. Day one, I was like, if we're doing a podcast, we're doing it in front of an audience because comedians are funnier in front of an audience because you go for the laugh, you mm-hmm. wait the beat. Mm-hmm. Sarah Pascoe says when you're in front of an audience, the laugh is the punctuation. So if the laugh doesn't come where you're expecting it to, you have to keep talking until it does come. So the audience teach you and guide you. And I think a lot of the success of the podcast is that we do stand-up comedy on it. Mm-hmm. You can hear the audience being a tribe, a family, an army. They will respond. You know, if there's an activist on stage telling us something about an injustice, you hear the audience go, oh, You hear them being angry. You hear them cheering when somebody is saying something that they feel is powerful or right. You hear them Mm. laughing and you know that at this show, you're in on the joke. You're not the butt of the joke on this show if you're listening to it. And so I feel like 
a lot of the power where people say, because of this show, I am a better feminist, or because of this show, I felt I could call myself a feminist. Uh, generally, it's two things. Because of this show, I said yes, or because of this show, I said no. Mm-hmm. Because of this show, I said, that's enough now. I'm not going to be sexually harassed like this at work anymore. No more. And I went to HR. Or because of the show, I had the courage to say, actually, I do want to do that PhD, and there's no reason why. I can't. It's just imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, I do do that. And we all admit the I'm a feminist Barts. the reason they're powerful is it's like confessional for feminists. It's where your values and your actions do not meet. And normally we carry those around. We think, oh, God, I left that march early because I was feeling a bit claustrophobic and Mm -hmm. I'm a bad feminist. The good feminist marched for the full three hours. I meant to read that feminist book, but instead I watched Four Hours of Love Island or Say Yes to the Dress. You know, when we hear everyone laugh, we go, that's relatable. Even though we've met like a handful of times, I'm like, I feel like I know you because I listen to you speak. I feel like I know your views. I'm like, I wonder what Deborah listens to. And I have to say, when I messaged you and you kind of messaged me a few back initially, they're not what I expected. <laughs> which, um, which I love, which well, is the beauty of this this podcast. I have guilty ones and feminist ones, but my first one, and this is my secret pleasure of the lockdown, it is Fake Doctors, Real Friends by Zach Braff and Donald Faison, <laughs> the Scrubs <laughs> rewatch show. Now, why, you may ask? Well, Scrubs started in 2001 and it was a show about junior doctors on their first day of the job. The pilot is about Zach Braff's character, JD, and his best mate, Turk, Donald Faison. They're absolutely junior. They've been to medical school, but they've never really made an incision in anybody. They've never cut a real person. They've only mm-hmm. they've only practised on cadavers. So if you were coming out of uni at that point into the wide world and you did not know what you were doing and which direction you were meant to be looking in, it was an incredibly relatable show. But they also managed the tone very brilliantly. It would go between extreme slapstick and ridiculous fantasies into really poignant moments. And they controlled the tone a lot with music where suddenly there'd be a doctor standing over a bed having to tell a patient, you're going to die. And they managed the tone miraculously. It's a very, very clever show. And it just reminds me of a simpler time for me. I was much younger and full of hope, really, much like like JD and Tuck. And so they are now looking back on that Mm -hmm. as grown men going, oh my God, remember when we were young and they told their audition stories and Zach said he was waiting tables and, you know, waiting for some kind of break and here along, you know, it comes. Mm -hmm. And, but you, then you don't know if the pilot's going to get picked up and all of that. And each week they talk about a different episode. They're going through Mm -hmm. the episode sequentially and they have guests on other actors from the show, Bill Lawrence, the creator. They have such a good time because they are such good friends. And they said at the table read, they said it was love at first sight. I feel like I remember what you wore to the table read, though. I feel like you wore corduroy brown pants. I could be wrong. I can't believe that you would remember this. And a t-shirt. And we met at the bar while I was getting a drink. I remember this. I was writing this down in my notes. First of all, it was at uh, Krista Miller's and and Bill's old house. And Charlotte Lawrence had just been born. Charlotte Lawrence was a baby. And we walked into, I remember it was a sunken living room. And there was a bar in the corner. And then you turned around and were like, gave me this big smile. And you were like, yeah, buddy. Like, and I, and I was like, it literally was love at first sight. Right. I, I, I just felt, I was so nervous, you have to understand. I mean, I knew who you were. Obviously, I knew who John McGinley was. I had met Sarah at my audition. 
But like, I was, you can imagine, I mean, we're all nervous no matter who you are, but I was, cause, cause also people do get fired after table reads. So, right. you know, you're like, you're like, I, I, I mostly have it, but I really got to make sure I keep it. And, right. uh, and then I saw you and you were so warm and, and, and I think we hugged, I think the first time. Yeah, we, no, we did hug. Yeah. You're, uh, <laughs> the first time we met, we hugged. Well, I, that's, that's, that was the, that was the crazy, the craziest thing was I remember not knowing who you were and being like, all right, they were, and Bill was like, let's start the table read. And I remember being nervous for myself. And then you started reading and all of a sudden the jokes that I didn't see in the script when I read it, all of a sudden started to appear because you were knocking out, knocking it out of the park and everybody was laughing and, you know, really excited. So when it was my time to come in, I was like, yeah, the energy was there. And you know what I mean? I just remember being like, holy cow, this kid is amazing. I, I remember being like, this could actually turn into something. This is at the table read. I remember being like, this could be something special. There's something lovely in that too, because I always feel heartbroken. You know when there's a band you love growing up or a TV show you love, and then you find out they all hated each other. Like Sex and the City, when oh. I found out about Sarah Jessica Parker and Kim Cattrall. I was devastated. Because devastated. in my head, I want them to all be pals. Yes, yes, yes. And they should be for us. <laughs> just and for I, us, even if they hate each other, just I pretend. find it disappointing. But I feel very heartened listening to that because a lot of those shows as you say they oh the show ended because everyone couldn't stand each other yeah but they say we are all still really good friends and you see that on the show as it goes on that they you know the guests that they bring back they clearly do hang out they clearly do have a great love for each other they clearly Mm -hmm. do have reunions and they say it was the best time of their lives everyone loved coming to work every day and they would all go to the bar when they rapped and they'd say we'd spend 12 hours on a set and we'd still want to drink together. We'd still want to go out together. And it was just the greatest time of our lives. And we didn't know how lucky we were because, we, you know, none of us have ever had an experience like that again. Even though we've had success, we haven't had that absolute joy of this is working and we're coming to work and we're making each other laugh every day. And I think I just needed something joyful and escapist and sentimental in lockdown. Mm-hmm. It's been really successful uh, during lockdown. It only started in March. I guess it was perfect timing. And, and this is why they did it, as you said, because they they were stuck at home. But I do feel there's been like a new love for, like, I mean, the show's ended in 2010, but there's been like a new love. I was kind of hoping that maybe it would ignite, I know, some network bosses somewhere to, to bring it back or do a one-off special. Where are they now? <sighs> they might do. They might do a Christmas special or something, but... You know, the joy of that show was how young they were. The whole joy of the show was it was doctors quivering in the supply cupboard, not wanting to come out because they didn't want to kill anyone. I think that if they brought it back, it's basically they'd have to do, well, we're training up the next lot of doctors. So Mm -hmm. in a way, I feel like don't spoil it. And in another way, of course, Mm -hmm. I would watch it. I could talk about all of the different shows that I want to come back, but uh, we're going to move on to your next pick, which is Best Pick. Uh, and actually, I, do, I hadn't heard of this podcast, so thank you for bringing it to my attention. Tell me a little bit about Best Pick. Well, despite my throbbing bias on this one, because it is... <laughs> Isn't it your yeah, company? <laughs> it is my company, but also my husband and his two cinephile friends, they're mad cinephiles, wild mm-hmm. cinephiles, John Dorney, Jessica Regan, they decided to watch every single Oscar Best Picture winner. Wow. And they research it. They research the year, what else was happening in film. They research what happened at the Oscars that year. They research all of the gossip from the film. And they deliver all of their findings 
then they watch the film and then you on the podcast mm-hmm. of course you can watch it if you want or you can just you know there's just, they just play a bit of the soundtrack so that you know oh they've watched it now and then they review it then they sit together and they say what did you think of it of course sometimes they've seen it before years ago sometimes they've never seen it and they ultimately ask the question did the academy get it right and so they mm-hmm. have to do a lot of watching around that film so tom's like every night we'll be like, I need to watch this. Well, I was going to ask, are you watching them with him? Does that mean that you kind of have to sit there as the TV taken up with him watching the the winning film from whatever year? It's like you live in my flat, Laura. It's like, <laughs> oh, I've got to watch. You're upstairs a- in the bar at this stage, Deborah. You're upstairs in the loft having a having Absolutely. Because it's like, oh, I've got to watch this classic from 1937. You know, and then I sort of, you know, walk upstairs. And of course, I want to be watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And in there, mm-hmm. he's in there watching some sort of, you know, golden age of the musical, you know, sort of, oh, lad, oh, the whole night through a story about you. <laughs> and this is, this is not Singing in the Rain. This is the movie that predated the Singing in the Rain, that, that Singing in the Rain that that song came from, that he's doing yeah. for some research for Singing in the Rain. I'm like, oh, my God. But it just won uh, a bronze award uh, for best arts podcast, but Arts and Culture yeah, podcast, the British, podcast, the British Awards. podcast Awards. Yeah. And it's a small show, you know, they started it yeah. on their own just because they loved it. And they said, look, if we get a little audit, we want to do this for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we are learning, we're going to educate ourselves about cinema because we love cinema. And if anyone listens, great. And they had that attitude of, if we have a small audience who care as much as we do, we don't care, frankly, if we're entertaining, you know, a hundred people. And it built and built and built and built. And now... You know, Jessica said to me that there, she was at, before lockdown, BFI screenings where all of these film critics were coming up and going, we use this as a resource. We absolutely adore wow. the show. The research is really serious. Mm. And also they're having a good time. So they do serious in-depth research and they check their facts. There was a, a great story Tom told about the Oscars where in 1933, again, this is my life, Will Rogers, <laughs> as in the archaic Will Rogers, read out the winner of Best Director with the words, come up and get it, Frank. Instead of saying the winner is, he said, come up and get it, Frank. Frank Capra, who was nominated, (laughs) jumps out of his seat to collect the award, confused as to why the spotlight had not found him. He's actually almost at the stage and then he sees Frank Lloyd lit on the other side of the room get up and claim the award. Two Franks. That's why you don't say come up and get it, Frank. Frank Capra has to skulk back to his seat. Do you remember um, that happened though? Remember it was a Warren Beatty who read out La La Land a few years yes. ago. That's happened a few times oh. now. Just just oh. double check when you're given I, as when I gave out my British podcast awards, I, I made sure to read what I saw written down and not just make it up myself. Me too, me too. It's so I mean that's that was terrible, that Moonlight uh, La La oh. Land one. But you know, it's not all kind of implausibly over your head film criticism either. The year that they they looked at Annie Hall, which is, you know, an art house film, they all said that it should have been Star Wars that won. The year that they looked at Deer Hunter, John said it should have been Superman. You know, there are times when they also have a sort of accessible view of films and they say, look, Mm. this film is so much more influential. I did, I guested on one and it was American Beauty, Mm -hmm. which I don't think holds up to be a Best Picture winner at all. Mm -hmm. But that was the year The Matrix came out. The Matrix wasn't even nominated and it's so much more an influential film. I think also hindsight, it's it's when you kind of see a few years on which ones have actually stood the test of time and and which ones are still feel relevant. Also with each different film, I know from some of the ones that I've listened to, 
I think it's really telling of that time. And I remember the one they talked about was The Shape of Water in 2017. And this was just, you know, as the height of the Me Too movement was happening. And I think it's really interesting seeing what film won at that time. And that kind of starts other conversations to the podcast as well. Absolutely. Well, they often get me on for a feminist one. That's what American Beauty was partly about, you know, the, the depiction of this relationship and Kevin Spacey and so on and so on. And and so we talk about those issues, but you've got to talk about it because that's the year. And if that's what won, mm-hmm. that's what won. And you've got mm-hmm. to look at it. And I think actually looking at it in context and also analysing why these stories were told or how they were told, it can be very, very useful in mm-hmm. creating the sort of world and storytelling we, we wish to create going forward. One of the things I find interesting in the research as well was that that part was originally offered to Kirsten Dunst. And she turned it down because she wasn't comfortable with the content, with the nudity and, saying, and kissing Kevin Spacey and found it an awkward thing. She was 15 at the mm. time. And you're thinking, yeah, I can completely mm. understand that. She also cool. found it quite traumatising when she took his Brad Pitt when she was about seven or eight. Mm. She did Into the Vampire. And she has gone on to say, like, that was actually horrible and I didn't enjoy it. And, you know, with no disrespect to Brad Pitt, but you mm. kind of look back at it now and you go, they didn't need to mouth kiss. That wasn't a thing that we needed to see. It could all have been implied. Yeah, no, absolutely. I wonder what many Suvari's journey has been because you do attract a lot of creeps when you do roles well, like that. Well, she was 20 years old when she made the film, though. Mm. And I think that's old enough to kiss Kevin Spacey. Oh, sure. I mean, Kevin would say too old. <laughs> Is that wrong? <laughs> right across the line? Sorry. Well, let's talk Sorry. about this because we're watching this film now in 2018 and certain facts about Kevin Spacey have come to light. So, Deb, do you have a view about how we should approach watching films like this where we we know things maybe we'd rather not know about some of the people involved in their well, making? this year at the Golden Globes, Seth Meyers opening with uh, Welcome Ladies and Remaining Gentlemen. And, I mean, our canon of films we can watch is rapidly diminishing. I mean, we're, our DVD shelves are frankly decimated. Bye-bye, X-Men. I mean, well, here's the thing, though. Here's the counter-argument to that. I think when it's an artist, if it's a Woody Allen, uh, Hannah Gadsby said the other day, people said, oh, you've got to separate the artist from the work. And she said to me, OK, then, let's look at his work. Manhattan, it's a film about a middle-aged man having sex with an underage girl or a... a She's very, 17, yeah. it's quite clear in the film. Mm. Yeah. Louis C.K.'s film that is unreleased is called Daddy, I Love You and is about some of these it's, issues I love of, you, Daddy, isn't it? Or I love you, Daddy. I love you, Daddy. It's an older man, young woman, power dynamic film. So I would suggest, okay, if an artist has authored something, then often their values have seeped into their work And I am absolutely not for revisionism or censorship or anything like that. But if I've only got so many hours in a week or a month or a year to watch things, I think I'd rather watch something made by some... We're just so drenched in this kind of toxic masculinity and power imbalance. And sometimes I just feel like we're bathing in the milk of toxic masculinity. So... Listen, I'm not for take half the paintings out of the National Portrait Gallery by any means because it's part of our history. And if you write all those things out of our history, it doesn't explain why the power imbalance exists in life. However, I've only got so many hours in a year to watch things. So I want to choose to watch things which I feel are empowering. Where it comes to films with Kevin Spacey in, where he's taken the job, here's my problem with going, you can't watch any film with Kevin Spacey in. If I say I can't watch any film with Kevin Spacey and including American Beauty, Annette Bening's performance is erased. And why should it be? It is phenomenal. Why does Kevin Spacey's appalling well, behaviour get to erase I think the world? Christopher Plummer's too old. <laughs> Lol. <laughs> 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The next podcast that's on your recommendations list, Deborah, is You'll Do. And this is a weekly podcast uh, celebrating the nitty gritty ups and downs of building a life with another person. And as somebody who has been, I was going to say trapped in a house. No, no, not trapped, but uh, staying in a house with my partner for <laughs> four months um, with, with no way of escaping or, you know, getting out and seeing other people as much as I'd normally. Um, I, I love Are this. you writing uh, your wedding vows right now? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm doing. I might, have to, I might have to work on them a little bit. <laughs> uh, you'll do is great, though. Catherine and Sarah are brilliant. They are. Yeah. In the first couple of months of lockdown, I had to be very careful not to argue with Tom because it was only legal to storm out once a day and so I was like I've had you know if you've had your storm out if you've got right well I'm going out for some fresh air I mean I just think you're being unreasonable if if you then can't snap at someone after that because then you'll be stuck there with them or you're going to face trying to illegally walk around a block and that didn't feel good Uh, actually Tom and I've got on really well in lockdown I, I say this but we have actually had some fun but we went on the show and mm-hmm. I found Sarah and Catherine to be such brilliant, generous interviewers about relationships. Mm. The first question they asked us was, are you monogamous? And wow. Tom and I looked at each other because we'd not long ago, I had said to Tom, for various reasons, I feel like I need a period where we where we go into an open marriage because we've been together a very long time and there are things I haven't explored, like my bisexuality, my potential bisexuality, you know, and... He was really open to it and said, fine, you know, if that's if that's something you need to do, that's not about us, that's about you, you know, go for it. And the first question they asked was, are you monogamous? And we just looked at each other and I was like, oh, my God. And I, they said, look, you can tell us and we'll edit it out if you change your mind. So we did, mm-hmm. but they were so gentle and it was only one part of the story. Mm-hmm. Then we talked about how we work together and how romantic we are. And we told stories about how much we love each other and our romance. And so it didn't seem lascivious or it didn't seem salacious or intrusive to talk about the fact that we'd opened our marriage because we also talked about what romance meant for us. And, and you know, for me, I said one of the most romantic things ever about Tom is that when I'm on stage doing stand-up comedy, even though it might be a show he's heard, you know, a hundred times, if I ad-lib something new, he'll text it to me. So when I get back to the dressing room, he'll, te- he'll have texted me something that I've ad-libbed and say, I think you should keep this in. It's Aww. a really good capper for the joke. And I'm like, how are you even still listening? That's really romantic to me, more than like Paris and violins and flowers, is someone who really, really cares about 
you and what's important to you and that he will still watch every moment of a show I'm in. If, if he's in the room and I'm on the stage, he's looking at me and he's he's finding joy in the audience taking joy in me. And he's so proud of my achievements. And he once said to me very early on, if I ever make you less than you are, leave me because relationships should make you more than you are. Mm-hmm. And it should give you a nest and an anchor and a tether so you can be braver and bolder to do more because you know if it goes wrong, you've got a safe place to come back to and you'll be looked after. It shouldn't make you more frightened. It shouldn't make you less bold. It shouldn't make you stay home more and do less and doubt yourself. And I was like, well, I'm never going to leave you then because that's an amazing thing to have said. And that was the kind of stuff that that Sarah and Catherine managed to sort of draw from us and you know, it was such a safe way of coming out as bisexual and a safe way of coming out as someone who'd opened their marriage because I was, of course, worried that someone would find out or put it on the internet and mm-hmm. then people would think I was cheating on Tom or something like that. You know, so I, I sort of felt as someone with profile, I needed to say it so that it was said and it wasn't hanging over me, but it was so safe. But afterwards I said to Catherine, my God, that was the first question you asked us, are you monogamous? And I was like, so like, oh my God. And she said, you told me to ask that first. I went, what? She said, yeah, ages ago, I talked to you about doing this. And you and Tom came up with the title and at, would they come over for dinner months before? And Catherine said, and you said, lots of people are in an open relationship now, so you shouldn't assume people are monogamous. You should ask them that because it's otherwise it's not inclusive. And I was like, well, that came back to bite me in the ass. <laughs> Because I was like, did I tell you to say that? She said, yeah. She said, yeah. You, you said, don't assume because a lot of people are open now. And mm-hmm. I was like, wow. And that was way before we'd talked about opening our relationship up or I was even thinking about it. I mm-hmm. guess it was a year ago because it was before I'd even started thinking about it. It's the, it's the beauty of a podcast. What is it that just gives you that safe space where you can be open and also not judged because you have the space to talk? I think I trust... I trust podcasts more than I trust print interviews. And I have been Mm -hmm. asked about it in print and I have pulled back from it because Mm -hmm. any sentence can be lifted. It's hard to read the tone. It's Mm Googleable. A podcast isn't Googleable. What you've said in a podcast isn't going to come up on on a Google search. And I trusted Catherine and Sarah to be gentle. And I trusted them that if I went home and I lay awake in bed thinking, I don't want that out there. And I phoned them and said, can you cut it out? They absolutely would. I was just listening to the one with Nish Kumar and Amy Annette talking about their relationship. And it was so warm and they were all talking about how you have less sex in long-term relationships, but they were being so open. But it was like being at someone's dinner party and just listening to people be very warm. And they were also being very joyful about what was romantic and how two very different people uh, a late person and an early person can operate together and that kind of thing. And, and it was just felt really glorious. So I really recommend that show, especially if you are in a couple or would like to be in a relationship and you're thinking about how you negotiate relationships. I think it's just a gorgeous space to sit. And I love the way Catherine and Sarah talk about their relationship and the joyful way that they show their behind closed doors on this podcast. Mm-hmm. The next podcast I want to talk about was named Podcast of the Year at the British Podcast Awards this year. Also won Best Sex and Relationship Podcast. It's Brown Girls Do It Too. Tell me about this one, Deborah. Yeah, this podcast, Brown Girls Do It Too, is quite new to me. And it's 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 hosted brilliantly by Poppy, Rabina and Roya, who are wonderful, wonderful presenters. 
And I'm just getting into it now, but I, I feel a binge coming on. I have to say it's a gorgeous space. It's really incredible to hear three women just sit and talk about sex and relationships. And they are so open and honest. But speaking of romance, again, it sounds like I'm obsessed with romance. This comes up every single time, but it, it does seem to be a theme in some of these shows. They were saying they thought blowjobs were romantic because you're really doing something for someone else where you're not necessarily going to get anything in resource. Like, I, I think an unreciprocated blowjob, they were saying, is romance. And that's not yeah. romance to me at all. But the way they were talking about it, it's a bit like the conversations that they had on Sex and the City for brunch, mm-hmm. but it's three contemporary brown women. Mm-hmm. And... What is wonderful is that I'm sure if you're a brown woman listening to that, you know, when are brown women given that space Mm -hmm. to talk? That's why it's called Brown Girls Do It Too. It's like, you know, we are not these sort of shy and retiring, sexless, asexual creatures who spend all our day being brown for you. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. we have sex lives and we have urges and we have vibrators and we have dating lives and we have romance. This episode I was listening to was very interesting because they were talking about, one of them was talking about their grandmother being in, I think, an arranged marriage and how, what a gulf there was between their experience, their grandmother's experience, but how much their grandmother loved their grandfather. And they were talking about it with a sense of cultural awareness that you would never hear from white people that Mm -hmm. felt like a privilege for me to listen in on because I learned. And it's the same way I feel about two dope queens. Sometimes they laugh about white people and... I have to sit in that space and be a bit uncomfortable. I can see the joke's funny and I laugh at it. I think it's how men feel when they listen to The Guilty Feminist. They're like, sometimes you're laughing about me. And sometimes I have men write in and go, you should make the space more inclusive and you should never do jokes about men. And I'm like, sorry, it's just not, this space isn't for you. You're very welcome to sit in it, but Mm -hmm. you are not central to it. Everything else is for you. You've Mm -hmm. got everything else. This is not for Mm -hmm. you. This is a space that is unapologetically for women and people of minority genders, including Mm -hmm. trans men. It is not for you. It's not for cisgendered men. But you are welcome. And I'm always pleasantly surprised by how many men show up Mm -hmm. in the venue. Sometimes you'll have 20%, 25% men who've turned up. And they love it. But the men that love it get that they are sitting in on a space and it's not their space. And that's how I feel listening to Two Dope Queens. I would never write to Two Dope Queens and go, could you make the space a bit whiter so I feel Mm -hmm. a bit more comfy? It's not about my comfort. And sometimes I hear them say something, oh, I would do that. Oh, I must not do that. That's not good. That's clearly not good. And having whiteness be decentered or in fact unavailable is very good for white people. It's important Mm -hmm. that we listen to shows that are not about us, that are not Mm -hmm. for us, Mm -hmm. that sometimes speak about us and about how we are. In the same way that I want men to listen to The Guilty Feminist and go, okay, I could do that better. Or, okay, that's actually useful a useful piece of allyship. Or, hey, I'm just looking out a window that I don't normally get to look out of because there aren't many things made from the point of view of women. And it's how you build empathy and how you stop othering people. You know, you stop othering people when... It is normal to hear their point of view and their experience. You know, I don't live in a brown body. I live in a white body. So Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of things I cannot know from my own experience. But if I bother to listen to a really funny, engaging podcast that I completely relate to because it's about sex and romance and I like both of those things, then I'm also filtering through brown experiences, cultural experiences that I might not have, racist experiences, all sorts of things that I, I can't possibly know unless I'm prepared to listen. So I... I thoroughly recommend listening to podcasts where in some way or another you do not share the identity 
of the people in the seats. And it's not that one brown or black person is invited in to talk on the end of a panel. It is that this is an entirely brown mm-hmm. space. And I think you will learn so much from it. And also they're just engaging and funny and delightful and brilliant. As you said, they're like for most Asian girls, openly chatting about sex is is so off limits. And Poppy and Rubina and Roya, they do it do it so well. One thing I noticed, and I always try not to look at this in podcasts because I like to have my own opinion on things. But you know, when you look to see what the reviews and the ratings are for this podcast, and obviously it's one podcast of the year, mm-hmm. but Deborah, it has all five stars and then all one stars. Like it oh has really God. divided people. And I, I think that's quite telling because it's a podcast that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, which I think is a good mm. thing. It's a really good thing. When men write to me and go, it should be, I'm like, no, it's a feminist show. We're allowed to mm-hmm. have a space. Thanks very much. That doesn't mean I don't want to talk about other things or I don't want other shows that are completely inclusive of everybody, all voices, but that's not what this is. It's podcast of the year. And that's mm-hmm. what's important. That's what's mm-hmm. important is, is that experience is central and mainstream and normal because mm-hmm. it is no more niche to be a brown woman having sex than it is to be a white man having sex. We think it is. We think it is. We think mm-hmm. it's niche. You know, and broadcasters will go, well, that'll only appeal to a certain demographic. Why? For years and years and years, brown girls have watched white men do everything. They've gone to the movies, they've watched white men jump off buildings and and they've watched white men have sex. They've watched white men run companies. They've watched white men land on the moon. It's just as niche for a brown woman to watch a a white man as it is for a white man to watch a brown Mm -hmm. woman be the star of the show and be the leader of the show. It is only perception that says that's niche. And it being podcast of the year means something. It means something. It's like, no, this is for everyone and it's central. And if you're seeing it as niche, then you're othering. Deborah, next on your recommendations, have you heard George's podcast? Have you? I have. I have. (laughs) And I find it absolutely extraordinary. I think what George the Poet is doing is reinventing the form of podcasting. And I think he won podcast of the year last year. He won, yeah, he won in 2019 last year. And he won the Peabody Award, becoming the first European podcast to win the award. Stop it right now. He is a remarkable talent and a a remarkable brain and has an incredible way of communicating. And I think he's reinvented the form. I think we all thought, oh, it's like radio. So we did what we'd heard on radio. But he thought, why does it have to be that? All we know about it is it's audio. Why can't it open with poetry? Why Mm -hmm. can't it have sound effects of the street? He changed the form. And I think he's going to be the most influential podcaster in this country, both the way that he's doing it and what he's saying is unique. It's innovative. It's imaginative. And I'm not surprised. He swept the boards at the podcasting awards last year and I'm not surprised he should have. He talks about the experience of living within white power structures. He's an extremely adept poet. And I was reading about him before. He studied psychology, sociology and politics, I think, at Cambridge University. And he really feeds that into the show. I heard him say rap is an incredible medium to educate. Mm. And it's easier to listen. It's easier to hear the rhymes and and visualise rather than hearing somebody's TED talk about sociology. He's able to create poetical metaphors and he analyses power structures. He analyses our neuro-linguistic responses and he does it all in such an entertaining and imaginative way that you can't help but be entertained, but also take away lots of revelations at the same time. So well done, George the Poet, if you're listening. 
the last podcast that we're going to talk about today, uh, we've left we left a good one to last because this is your your favourite. Uh, we're having a moment by Baratunde. Oh, Baratunde Thurston. Oh my God, this should be required listening for everyone right now. It's vitamins for your soul. Oh, I love that. What a great way to describe a podcast, Vitamins for Your Soul. It really is. It's collagen for the brain. It's something you just need to hear. I think it's a limited series, actually, but I bet it'll run and run because it's phenomenal. And it's Baratunde Thurston, who's an African-American man. He is looking at why Black Lives Matter came to such a boiling point, triggered by the brutal homicide of George Floyd Although I've just been listening to an episode about the way we use language and that I think it was a a linguist he was interviewing saying that we say things like men kill women and then it sounds like that man couldn't help but kill that woman because men kill women. Whereas you need to say that women are killed by men. And that's one episode where I was just learning so much about the Mm. passive voice and why we use the passive voice, how we we are trying to centre the victim's name and not use the murderer's name. But again, what Mm -hmm. does that do then? And it's so interesting. But overall, the series is looking at why this came out of lockdown, Mm -hmm. why, why it happened at a time when everyone was at home and frustrated and had more time and energy and anger in them to focus on it, why there's been so much allyship from white people and people of other races at this time, but also looking at there's a whole episode on defund the police and what that means. So defund the police in this case does not mean there'll be no one to call when you have a problem, when something happens. It means that different, more appropriate departments and people with different sorts of training Mm -hmm. specific to a situation will be funded and communities will be funded. So think about all the places where you would be frightened to see the police or you would not expect to see the police or it would throw you. And then think about how many of the times when you might call the police or see the police intervening where somebody else could do that better, who was trained to de-escalate or trained to be compassionate or trained to help or trained to look after the situation in a different way. And that made so much more sense to me and made me understand I mean, not that I'd never thought those things through, or I didn't, but I never understood it in quite that way. And it was or had the space the, where it's it's talked about, where there's actually that much space to have the conversation around it. Exactly. I think you kind of see, you know, a hashtag Headlines that says and, you yeah. see a hashtag that says all cops are bad cops. Then you see someone yeah. reacting to that, and that's the end yeah. of the story. And these mm. are really important, meaningful, and practical, pragmatic conversations that are happening in America and, by extension, in our country. So I highly recommend it. Each episode focuses on a different element of this. If you're somebody who thinks, I'd like to know more about Black Lives Matter, I'd like to get involved more in Black Lives Matter, I don't Mm. really know about it, or is it appropriate for me as someone who isn't Black to be involved in it? Am I going to be seen to be centering myself? This show is for you. And it's, it's nourishing, it's compassionate, it's inviting, it's educational, it's never patronizing, and it's never scolding. In my words, in the video I recorded the day after Memorial Day, you can hear a reference to George Floyd, but I didn't know his name or the name Derek Chauvin, the police officer who killed him. I just knew there was a video of a Minneapolis cop with his knee pressed into the neck of a black man, and I knew I didn't have it in me to watch. I had recently seen video of a New York City police officer doing a similar thing to a young black man on the sidewalk for no good reason. The police were assaulting what looked like kids because they didn't have masks on. So I waited to see what became known 
as the George Floyd video. But I already knew. I'd seen these videos before. I'd heard these stories before. Amy Cooper's call didn't result in police killing Christian Cooper, thankfully. But it could have. And she knew it. It's a wake-up call. And also there will be times when you feel discomfort as a white person and it's a, it's a useful discomfort that you can sit in and push through. And mm-hmm. I, I really do think it should almost be mandatory listening. Deborah, thank you very much for those recommendations. What an eclectic mix, is what I'll say as well. Last question, what's next for the podcast empire? Well, I actually want to do some Guilty Feminist spin-offs. So I think we're going to be doing something. I mean, this is really, I'm really, this is a scoop here because I, I don't even know oh, if I love a scoop. going to come off, but I'm going to, I'm trying to put together at the moment a spin-off from the Guilty Feminist called The Gender Agenda with a very brilliant trans neuroscientist called Rubes Walsh, where we ask the questions about gender, about the binary, about transitioning. And we try and have this conversation in a way that reduces how flammable it is. People are very frightened to have this conversation at the moment. So I I am very interested in creating a more compassionate world for trans people. Rubes J. Walsh is a fantastic communicator. And if you're feeling like, I don't know what to think about any of this, of course, I want to be compassionate to trans people. This is a scary subject. You will come to this podcast and you'll be like, again, it'll be vitamins for the soul. So I'm really excited about making that, but I'm pre-announcing that because I'm trying to set it up at the moment and do it in a way that's financially viable. So Rubes and the other presenters and guests can be paid. So yeah, but I'm I'm looking at doing some Guilty Feminist spinoffs that are spaces that centre different voices. Mm -hmm. And I also want to do a show called The Joyful Resistance, which is about resisting uncompassionate forces in in our society and in our world. It just kind of goes to show you there's an infinite number of podcasts and conversations that can be had. And, and it's just building. It, it's it's really lovely just to watch the, the podcast community grow and grow. And, and you're, I mean, you're one of the people really pushing behind that. So thank you for the conversations that you create. And thank you, Deborah. Thank you for these recommendations. And thank you for your podcast. Oh, it's, it's a delight to do. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast, which helps everybody find other brilliant podcasts. It's, it's what a wonderful resource you're building here. Thank you. It's been an unqualified delight, Laura Whitmore. And that's it. Another episode down as we delve deep into my guest's audio world. I hope you get cast away by today's top podcast picks. Yeah, I just said that, sorry. All of the podcasts we've mentioned today are included in the episode show notes. Now, if you love this conversation as much as I did, please share your thoughts by leaving a review. And if you'd like to receive weekly installments of Cast Away delivered straight to your phone, hit the subscribe button. Until next time, that's it from me. Take care. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 